It's not just parents that are proud as punch when a bub is born, is it? It's lovely to see the love of grandparents and great-grandparents is a very special part of the way God has made us in families. Before we get into God's word this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come into your word today that you might help us to understand it and to understand what it says to us in the 21st century, in the Western world, in Australia, not necessarily under the law of Moses in the way that your Old Testament people were. But we trust you and we believe you when you say that all of your word is for us, all of your word speaks to us. And so we just pray that you might enable us to have ears to hear, that you by your spirit might plant your word deep in us, that we might live lives that bring you glory and bring you honour in living good lives before the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got our last, last little bit of Leviticus today. Chapters 25 to 27 bring us to the end of this very unusual book. This very difficult book for a lot of Christians to make sense of and to understand how it applies to us, given that it's all about law and particularly about a lot of laws that uh, aren't part of our worship anymore, that we, we don't do the sacrifices of animals. We don't have all of these concerns about being clean and unclean. But I hope that we've seen throughout this book the way that it points us to Jesus and what he's done for us. What it means for him to be the, uh, the sacrifice that brings atonement for sins. To be the one that paid the price that our sins deserved in our place. To be the one who makes us clean and the one that makes us holy. And so we're going to read uh, this morning from chapter 26. Of Leviticus. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season. And the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest. And the grape harvest will continue until planting. And you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favour and make you fruitful, and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest, when you'll have to move it out to make room for the new. I'll put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. 
I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'll bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing. If after all this you will not listen to me, I'll punish you for your sins seven times over. I'll break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I'll multiply your affliction seven times over as your sins deserve. I'll send wild animals against you. And they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile towards me, I myself will be hostile toward you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you and you will be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. If, in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile towards you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste to the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lays desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. 
Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also because of their ancestors' sins, they will waste away. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. These are the decrees, the laws and the regulations that Yahweh established at Mount Sinai between himself and and the Israelites through Moses. Not perhaps the most light-hearted passage that we find in the Bible. What we see in chapter 26 is in many ways like the closing terms of a contract. The covenant that the people of Israel were making with God. The covenant that they'd made with God at Sinai was that they would be his people, that he would be their God, that they would worship him alone and that he would provide for them, protect them, that he would give them all of his good things. He would give them the land that he had promised to them and in him they would find great blessings. In him they would find all that they needed. But it was very common in these sort of contracts they had in the ancient world. I mean, when you had, had situations where, like Hammurabi of Babylon, and he would come in and he would conquer another city, and he would give these people, this is the covenant in the conquered city that you are making with me. These are the rules you have to follow, and this is the good things that you can expect if you follow these laws, and this is all the terrible things that I'm going to do to you if you don't follow my laws. And, I mean, if, if we thought this, some of the things God was saying sounds harsh, some of these ancient law codes had hundreds of pages of just this is the bad stuff that will happen if you don't listen. But at the end of all of this, this law, this agreement about what it means for Israel to be God's people and for him to be their God... He wants to leave them in no doubt that when they're committing to be his people and him to be their God, that's a very serious commitment. It's a commitment that he will always stick to, this covenant that he's making with them. No matter how much they break the covenant with him, he would keep his covenant with them. He would always remember the promises that he'd made. But that didn't mean that there wouldn't be serious consequences 
If the people turned to other gods, if they rejected him and rejected his laws. This final section of Leviticus is looking forward in many ways to settling in the land that God has promised to his people. And that God's people living in this land is a huge emphasis of these three chapters, uh, one of which we just uh, read out then, about the blessings and, and curses, about flourishing in the land and existing in that land, or, as we saw, if, if they were disobedient enough, being taken from the land and having it taken from them. And either side of this chapter that we just read are laws about how the people of Israel are to engage with this land that they're going to and how they are to be uh, to engage with God's people while they're there. And these laws provide a reminder of an important truth for the people of Israel, that this land that they are going to is God's land. God owns it all. This promised land that we're told was flowing with milk and honey is being given to them. It's not something that's been earned by them. And thus how they treat God's land and how they treat God's people is a sign of their respect for him. So in chapter 25, we see God institutes every seventh year from when they enter the land, they to give the land a rest. They're not to, not to plant any crops uh, in their field, but instead, you know, they, their food is to be what they can forage, what grows naturally, but also God promised that every sixth year he would give them a really good crop, that they could store some of that away. Um, you know, e even in those days, with their granaries, they could store grain for quite a long time to be able to keep it for a... For a I was going to say for a rainy day, but kind of the opposite, for a not rainy day, for when their crops uh, fail. Or, as in the seventh year, when they're giving the land a rest. And we know in, in modern farming and things, we know the land needs a rest. We know the leaving land fallow or, or, you know, or else you re-improve the soil by uh, putting fertilisers and things into it. But if you don't do that and if you keep just trying to grow in the same paddock over and over and over again, you drain all of the, the, the nutrition from it, from all the good stuff from the soil, and things won't grow as well. So it, God knew that, and that was undoubtedly part of the reason he gave them this law. But also that they are obedient to his covenant, that they respect this land that he has given them. And then every seventh Sabbath year, so after every 49 years, there was to be a very special thing that happened on the 50th year. They called it the year of Jubilee. And on the Jubilee, any land that a person in Israel had, or a family in Israel had been compelled to sell would be returned to them. So, uh, you know, you've got a clan somewhere in, in the tribe of Simeon and they've sold some of their land to, to some wealthy neighbours because they had had a couple of bad years and they couldn't, you know, they had to take out a loan to get the seed to plant for the next year and then that year had failed and they had to sell the land in order to recover their debts. But God was concerned that uh, there wasn't, you know, 
generational consequences of these kinds of things, that there wasn't uh, this inequality within his nation, within Israel. And so the people could never really sell their land. Instead, what they could do was give a lease until the next jubilee. And so he told them, if you're selling your land, you know, if, it's, if it's 30 years from the next jubilee, you're going to charge more than if it's five years from the next jubilee. Don't try to rip people off with this thing. But that then on the year of jubilee, all of this would be restored to the, the clan within Israel who it initially belonged to. And likewise, when people were badly in debt in those days, they could sell their own labour. They could sell themselves into being uh, servants for somebody else in Israel. And on the year of Jubilee, they were to be set free and to go home to their families. And we see the reason why uh, God institutes this in uh, Leviticus 25. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. So that's why they shouldn't sell the land permanently. And then as for the people, they are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released. And they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because... The Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. God owns it. God owns the land. God owns the people. And on that day of, on that year of Jubilee, God will redeem his people and redeem any of the debts that they have. And again, like I said, this was partly about fairness and social justice and all of these things within that society and about you know, preventing those you know, institutional, generational things that, that hold people down in a cycle of poverty. But it was also there to teach people about redemption, about that someone, that God is the one who pays off our debts. And then in chapter 27, the other, the other chapter of this passage we're looking at this morning, once in the land, there's this whole chapter about what they can dedicate to God, what, what gifts they might choose to give to God beyond their tithe, beyond the, the 10% of their, their animals on their farm, on the crops that they grew, that they could give a gift to God out of thankfulness to him. They could dedicate animals they could dedicate land. They could dedicate a house. They could dedicate people. Now, that sounds a bit strange, but you know, probably the most famous example of that happening in the Bible is a guy called Samuel. You might remember Hannah, his mother, uh, was barren for many years, prayed that God would give her a son, and in return, uh, she, would, she would dedicate this son to him. And that, the, the effect, like, the, what that meant for a person to be dedicated was that then they would serve at the tabernacle, that they would uh, you know, help with all of the work that needed to happen there. Or if you give your, gave your house, dedicated your house to God, that would mean like God wouldn't come and live in that house 
you know, in a particular sense like he did in the temple, but that would open it up to being used by the priests or the Levites if they had need of it. And in most cases, basically except for animals, God allowed people to redeem back what was given. You know, to say, oh, I'll give this to God for a time and then I'll buy it back from him. Or, I'll, you know, this, my, my son will be a servant for God for a time and then we'll, we'll pay off the price for him and he'll come back to be with us. Or you sell yourself to work at the temple and then after a certain time pay off the price and redeem yourself. And so we have this, this kind of key ideas of redemption, but also about God's ownership of all of this, that God owns this land that he's going to, that by rescuing and by virtue also of being their creator, God owns the people. The laws remind us that God owns the land and the people. And this doesn't just apply to Israel. That isn't just something that was for the Old Testament. We read in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And we read in Colossians 1, for in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and for him. It's like when you're a kid and you invited you know, one of your friends to come over to my house. Why don't you come over to my house? It wasn't my mortgage on that house. I wasn't paying a cent towards that house. I considered it my house. But whose house was it really? It was my parents' house and partially the bank's house. Um, and it's similar. We, we own many things in this world. There are many good things that we have. What difference does it make when we remember that actually God owns it all? That God owns my house and the land that it's on. That God owns my car. That God owns... I don't know, my, my farm, if I have a farm. What difference does it make to think about the fact that we're only here for a time, only here for a season, and God in his goodness has given us those things to enjoy for this season. But they are his, and we can use them to honour him, or we can we can lose sight of the fact that they're his and we can hold on to them like they're mine even though they're not really. What difference does it make too, not just of the land, what difference does it make if I remember that the people around me, my co-workers, my students, my husband or wife, my children, my parents, what difference does it make if we remember that they belong to God? That they're made in God's image. And this is the challenge that God is giving to his people in this wrapping up of the law. 
Not to get so proud that we think, look at all of what I've done and what I've earned. But instead to see, look at all that God has given me. And that's a, that leads to a very different outlook in life, doesn't it? There's a huge difference between the pride of, look at what I have made, and the thankfulness of, look at what God has given me. And this is something God is drilling into the people of Israel through these laws. Every year when they had to leave the, not every year, every seventh year, when they had to leave those paddocks uh, unplanted, they were reminded, this is God's land. And with all the laws about, you know, the labour of people and, and them having to be redeemed on the law of the year of Jubilee, they're reminded, these are God's people, not my people. Well, they, they are my people as well, but in terms of ownership, they're God's people. So God owns it all. That's the first key thing that we see in these three chapters of Leviticus. The second Through Jubilee, we noted God shows himself to be the redeemer of his people. That at the end of that time, uh, you know, when they they were working as as servants or when they sold their land, at the end of it, God was redeeming it for his people through the year of Jubilee. But the thing is, normally it costs money to redeem something. So if in Israel a person sold their field... Uh, for, I don't know what a fair sum of money is, but you know, let, let's say it was the equivalent of 20,000 bucks. They sold their farm for that. They, uh, at any time, they had the right to actually redeem it, to purchase it back, or to have somebody, a family member, come along and redeem it for them. But to do that, they had to pay the person who bought that land $20,000. They had to pay back what was, owed, uh, what, what was owed. What price did God pay to be the redeemer of his people? Because in terms of the, the Day of Atonement, it's not like people... No, not the Day of Atonement, the Year of Jubilee. It's not like people could rock up to the temple and say, God, give me the money for that, that um, farm I bought off of uh, Joe Blow down the road. What price did God pay to be the redeemer of his people? He gave his son. The debt that we owed God was not really about money. The debt that we owed God was our failure to follow his laws, our failure to to keep the covenant that we've made with him. We sinned and fell short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That is the debt that we owed God. The wages of sin is death and God's wrath against sin in this world. But the good news is, of course, that Jesus came to be the redeemer of his people. That he came to pay the price. That like a person who became a slave because of the incredible debt that they owed in those Old Testament times. 
being set free and redeemed at the year of Jubilee. We were all by nature slaves to sin. We're all trapped in a cycle of sin uh, leading to death that there was no escape from. And we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been, the price has been paid. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died in our place. The wages of sin is, you know, is God's wrath against sin. And he bore God's wrath on that cross. And Jesus came as the Redeemer. I mean, just look at these words from Isaiah 61 that speaks about the year of Jubilee. And think about how, who comes to mind when we say these words? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Those same words that Jesus would read out in a synagogue very early in his ministry and very provocatively tell the people around him, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is what the year of Jubilee points to, that God is the redeemer of his people who pays off debts that we could never repay. And because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross, we all have a choice. A choice like Israel were given in chapter 26. The blessings and the curses. And God holds out a similar thing to people. You can remember what Jesus has done for you. You can put your trust in him and have blessings that will last forever but be careful that you don't reject God and all that he has given us and reject Jesus who gave his life for you because the cost of that is even higher than some of those very drastic things that we've read about in chapter 26 the curses that Israel faced the cost of rejecting Jesus is that when all things are made new they will not be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. They will be those who are outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where for a lifetime of rejecting God, the consequence will be that God will in turn reject them. And that's a dreadful thing to face. But what we're reminded of in chapter 26, in amongst all of those very confronting sounding things, or all of those really nice sounding things in the blessings about how you like, never go hungry and there's more food than you know what to do with. But what's really being driven home in all of that 
is that good things are enjoyed in relationship with God. Because good things come from him. Now, we, we can overstress that point, and, you know, there are churches that teach that if you're faithful to God, that means that you'll have all of the material things here and now in this life that you could ever want. I don't think that's, well, that's not the correct way to understand how Leviticus applies to us today. In Leviticus, we're given a picture in the here and now, you know, a picture in this world of prosperity to teach about what the real reward for faithfulness is, that we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, that we have a hope to look forward to of something far better than even the best of the blessings that can happen in this life. But good things are enjoyed in relationship with God because he is the creator of all the good things. And we can't justly say, God, I want all of your good things, but I don't want you. Give me all your good stuff and get out. That's the essence of what it is to do what they were warned not to do, to take the land that God was giving them and the, the blessings and the, 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 all of the, the promises that he'd given them and then turn around and say, yes, we've got all this stuff now. We don't want you anymore, God. We're going to go after the other gods instead. We can't have God's good things without him. Not forever, at least. That's what the New Testament teaches us. The wicked may uh, flourish for a while. And we see, you know, criminals with their large criminal empires living at large. But it won't last forever. There will come a day where they won't be able to enjoy God's good things while rejecting him. And there's another important thing to realise as we look at this, you know, some of those very confronting things that we read in chapter 26. That this is not what God is saying will happen if you make a mistake. This is not what God is saying will happen if you accidentally swear one time or if you, um, you know, get into a fight with your neighbours or any, any kind of sin. We've seen throughout Leviticus, there's a, whole, there's a whole sacrificial system. There's ways for people to deal with sins and to be forgiven for sins. And so this, these curses were not about people that made mistakes. This was about fully rejecting God as their God and rejecting all of the covenant that they'd made with him. God is patient. I don't know if you saw that in that passage that we read, but it was there. Did you notice that the whole point of all of the bad things happening was to get the people's attention so that they would return to him? It starts off with, with small things. And if they still won't listen, then it'll be bigger things. And if they still won't listen, then it will be bigger things. And sadly, we, saw this, we see this in the history of Israel. That sometimes they came back to God after just a little bit of correction. But it got to the point where they had to be carried off from their land and taken into exile before they repented of their sins. And God was true to his promise. 
He promised no matter how bad you get, no matter how far down this scale of punishments we get, if you turn back to me, I will always hear you. I will always forgive you. And we can just start all over again, start afresh. So God made every good thing. God owns it all. And one day he will make everything good. And the great news of Leviticus 25 to 27 is that God delights in sharing his good things with his people. He was choosing to give them the land. He wanted to give them his blessings. He wanted to pour out all of these good things upon them. He, the, the very reason he made people was to share in this world that he created, in the good things that he'd made for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God delights to share his good things with us. Now in part, doesn't mean our lives will always be easy and full of luxury and wealth, but every good thing in our lives that we do enjoy is from him. One day we'll have in full Every good thing shared with us. But we only have a share in that, in relationship with God, our Creator, our Redeemer. Yet we only have a share if we have that relationship with Him. If we put our trust in Him. So how do we, just very quickly in closing, going out from this place today, How do we live Leviticus chapter 25 to 27? We don't have a year of Jubilee. We don't have these particular covenant blessings and curses and we don't dedicate things to God in the same way. But going out today, remember every good thing we have belongs to God. He owns it all and he's sharing it with us. And so we can give thanks. But we're also reminded in that of our responsibility to respect him in how we use the good things that he's given us and how we respond to the people made in his image around us. We're reminded that every person we meet is created by God and loved by him, even the ones we find it difficult to get along with sometimes. And it reminds us that we can show the generous love that God has shown to us, to others. We remember that the earth is God's and everything in it. And that's wonderful news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it can be hard sometimes to understand the laws of the Old Testament. And how we put that into action when we don't have a year of Jubilee and we don't have so many of the specifics that we see here. But help us to be reminded of the truths within that this world is yours and that you graciously give us a place in it. 
And all, every good thing that we have comes from you. And let us be thankful of that. You own all of the people in this world. You created them. And before one of their days came to be, you'd planned out their whole lives ahead of them. And we just pray that as we go out from this place, we'll remember that. If these people around us are your people. This world is your world. Let us delight in being your people, in the, in the promise that you've made that you will be our God and we can be your people. When we fail, when we fall short, may we not be stubborn and foolish, but may we confess that we've made mistakes, trusting that you redeem your people, you give forgiveness, that you paid the price for our sins that we could never pay. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.